This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Good morning, good morning, Professor Ward Scott here in the Warthog Man Cave, the Manly Man Cave, the command center in the Melbourne Law Studio, the only law partner of the University of Florida, Melbourne Law, and 352-325-3938. We are scheduled, we believe, to um, be hooking up here soon with Phil Kirpin um, of the American Commitment Foundation, um, provided we um, get all our ducks in a row here. There have been a few changes to the way we initiate our... Um, our show here and um, uh, not not something we do. It's something, you know, the Facebook boys do and um, all the above. So um, we're, we're hoping we can connect up there. But meanwhile, good morning from Mexico and, and all over who watched the show today. Hopefully we'll get this put together because um, the American Commitment also has some conversation they want to share with us about uh, vaccines and mandates and all the above uh, and the Supreme Court ruling. So that's uh, what we are anticipating a connection here with uh, our president of the American commitment. Um, have to uh, keep you up to date on uh, uh, local developments that, uh, that are proceeding hopefully. And that is that uh, um, the parking situation in downtown Gainesville is bewildering. I had to go down there yesterday to um, from here, of course, the uh, man cave, the command center, which is not in Gainesville, as you know, it's in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida. And if you haven't been downtown Gainesville lately, you're going to be in for a shock if you try to go right around the courthouse and around the uh, various restaurants and things that are down there. You're going to be in, a sh in for a shock because there's no more uh, free parking. Uh, doesn't exist, and and uh, the the signs now have. Uh, an indication that you are to pay uh, through an app. And um, the, the app is depicted uh, on a sign. And I, uh, I think we see Phil checking in here. But um, the, the app is depicted on a sign. And this sign is something that uh, is a brainchild of the boy named uh, Lauren and his crew. So they're charging for parking in downtown Gainesville. Hello, Phil. Just uh, filling in on some local stuff here while waiting on you. Um, the, the, they're, they're charging for parking in downtown Gainesville. Beware. Uh, they're going to give a grace period until the 1st of February, but you might be caught uh, unaware. And the only way you're ever going to be able to pay is to have this app and uh, all the above. So uh, the downtown merchants are complaining that it's running off what little business they have left after they've not run off the homeless and the hungry down there. And also the downtown merchants are, uh, the, the answer from the uh, city commission is that, oh, well, it actually bring you more business because people won't be mooching free parking and parking spots all day long. They'll have to get out if they don't pay, et cetera, et cetera. So that is our update and Phil has joined us. So uh, 
Um, that is our update on uh, downtown parking in the city of Gainesville. Beware, do not go down there if you think you're going to get free parking. You're going to be able to run in and run out or stay for whatever. It's really affecting county courthouse business. That's the big thing that a lot of the public uh, is going to be caught by surprise on. Good morning, Phil. How are you, sir? I'm good, Ward. How are you? Oh, just giving an update on the liberal uh, um, behavior here in the city of Gainesville, where they've uh, once again come up with a brainchild on how to run down business. And uh, on top of mandates and everything else, which we're going to be talking about, um, I don't know how a small businessman has a chance, Phil. <laughs> yeah, well, we, um, you know, it's interesting. D D.C. actually has extremely expensive parking. I mean, it's like, I, I don't know, it's like $4 an hour or something on the meters now. Um, but, you know, for like the first year of coronavirus, they suspended enforcement. So it was like free parking. I think it was related to the state of emergency or something. So it was great. But that, you know, then that ended. And anyway. Well, uh, I don't certainly have any reason to go to D.C., but uh, I suppose this is nothing. Yeah, stay away. This is like the most evil place. I mean, I don't know. These people are crazy. <laughs> I was watching. I don't know. Did you watch any of the Senate debate last night, Ward? No, I did not. Pass this bill to like ban state voter ID laws and all this other crazy stuff. And uh Elizabeth Warren's down there saying, you know, voter ID is the most racist thing. It's the new Jim Crow. Black people can't get IDs. They know this. They're trying to suppress the vote. And it's like, lady, you need to show an ID and a Vax card to go like indoors any place in the city you're currently speaking in. Like, <laughs> like I, I don't. Well, it's the only card, in my humble opinion, Phil, it's the only card. And by the way, if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Phil Kirpin, a long time friend and guest occasionally on the Ward Scott Files here. What? talking out of the belly of the beast, I suppose, in Washington, and <laughs> President of the American Commit, we're going to get around to talking to the Supreme, about the Supreme Court here in a moment and the mandates and all, but right now we've got a whole litany of things to talk about, and Phil, it's the only uh, card, in my humble opinion, that the Democrats really can play uh, is the race card. And uh, they can pull. They can pull out. It's out so of ridiculous! It's so ridiculous. They're in a city where half the black people in the city didn't get the vaccine, so now they're banned from restaurants and gyms and sports venues and movie theaters and you know everything on the long, 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 long list. Okay, and then they go out and say, "But if you want to require an ID, you're a racist." <laughs> well, you know, you know, it's funny that you should mention it because I have a friend who was pulled into a, out of retirement to go to South Florida earlier. Oh, about a year ago, whenever the vaccine ramp up, the first dose of it was really going around. And uh, it was the uh, Pfizer vaccine. And they could not give it away down there to the black folk. They really thought it was something, a conspiracy from the whites to really finally do them in. And since the Pfizer vaccine had to be discarded once it wasn't used that day, they ended up throwing a lot of it away, Phil. Yeah, I mean, the uptake has been much lower uh, among blacks than among whites. Uh, we've seen that pretty consistently, which is why it's amazing that the Democrats are trying to, like, ban people from public life based on vaccine decisions. And then, you know, they're always calling Republicans racist. Um, you know, you can't understand these people. I don't know. I've been trying to understand these people for years. They still don't make sense to me. I'm afraid of Dr. Strangelove. I don't know if you ever saw the movie or. Uh, I've seen it. Huh? I've seen it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm afraid we're not living in that world. I mean, uh, you know, upside down is right side up and and, um, you know, backwards is forwards and the double language of the uh, meanings of the language and codes that are embedded in it. And you absolutely cannot on these social platforms discuss anything uh, on programs like this that question the election. 
because uh, they'll take it down. We've well, the thing, that, the thing that I can't stand, Ward, is they keep saying they keep saying that any questions about the 2020 election are quote the big lie, which is a reference to Joseph Goebbels and Nazi propaganda. Uh, you know, I, when did it become okay for an entire political party in the media to just make casual Nazi references every day? I find that very disturbing. I mean, they're and, basically calling you a Nazi if you have any questions about the election. I, 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 but they all do it casually as if that's totally fine. That's, that's the one thing they play consistently. And, of course, the manifestation of, uh, of, 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 of Hitler would be Trump. And it's, it's the other thing that they have. They have to have a devil in order to rally the troops. But as I'm reading it, it's backfiring. It seems to be backfiring. It really is a test for democracy to see if the theory that the common man has as much sense as the king's can sort this out and smell a rat and decide, you know, this is not true in spite of being shut down by the media and uh, the platforms and everything. Um, still, it seems to be that the uh, common man may actually have a built-in crap detector and be able to tell what this is. You know, I'm, I'm stealing that from my deceased friend, Don Pierce, who wrote Cohan Luke. I I, I uh, yeah, talking to him one time and he said, well, I've, all I've got, Ward, is a built-in crap detector. Uh -huh. And, you know, he could tell when somebody was, you know, lying and or not representing things as they should be represented. He said, everybody needs one. Yeah. And it might be that, you know, this theory will hold up because I've read two opinions, as I'm sure you have. This is the end of democracy. And yet doc democracy has survived all this collusion theory, which has been covered up about uh, uh, Trump being a, not, a Russian spy. You know, they worked hard and diligently at that field for, what, four or five years, you know? Well, and then it collapsed completely, and they didn't even really apologize. I mean, they didn't give back their Pulitzer Prizes or any of that. None of it. None of it. So um, let's talk a little bit about what you've um, filed here on this science amicus brief, because i got to tell you, uh, I'm sure... I've read everything under the sun about COVID. I've read every opinion in continuum. Now it's become really interesting in the tennis world. I was an NCAA tennis uh, official, so I'm really up on the game and what all is implied and all the rules. It's a very rule-oriented world. Uh, it's an international world. It's a traveling world. Um, and uh, uh, it, it has really got uh, Novak Djokovic now as the center of the controversy. And... Uh, he is going to probably be, I'm reading more about it today, he's going to probably be banned from any tennis tournaments uh, this year, which really seriously affect any chances he's got in terms of holding on not only number one, but also just one of the great tennis players, because that's a lot of time to be off the circuit, you know. Well, we'll see. I think uh, it looks like they're going to, it looks like they're going to keep him out of the French. I don't think that, uh, I don't think he'll be kept out of Wimbledon because they're dropping all their restrictions in the UK. Uh, and, you know, the big question is what Biden's going to do, right? Is he going to keep him out of the U.S. hardcore season? Because, uh, you know, I think there would be a lot of blowback if he does that. I, okay. I, I, um, That's exactly what the tennis or USDA has said. We will abide by whatever the national rule is. Yeah, they're going to go by. I mean, look, Biden's going let, to let's not be let's not be uh, naive about this, Ward. The president of the United States is personally going to decide whether he's allowed into the country. There's no way someone lower than that's going to decide. So I think he needs to let him in. I mean, uh, but we'll see what he does. Well, it's going to be interesting because right before the 22nd uh, election, you know, I mean, the fall election, when everything is going to be um, 
Truth, let's put it this way, truth will be compromised. Well, we'll see earlier than that, Ward, because, you know, is he going to be able to come to, like, Indian Wells in Miami and, you know, sort of the, right, the, the right. March tournaments, you know, even before we talk about the summer? Um, I mean, I sure hope so. I think he'd, he'd get a tremendous response and reaction at those tournaments, and uh, we should want him here. But, I mean, that's going to be, you know, uh, border immigration, whatever. Uh, it's going to be a political, it's going to be a Biden question. I don't know. Well, let's talk about that, because if anything's been politicized, of course, it seems that we can all agree, no matter where individuals stand on vax or not the vax or max or not the mask and all that, uh, it's been politicized. And what do your uh, research show you about that? We have. Uh, um, well, let me tell you what we told the Supreme Court, um, because I think it's really important. They, they, by the way, they were very ill-informed on the state of the science. I, weren't I they? Weren't they ever? Remarkably so. And so, you know, I hope. You know, I hope that at least some of them are their clerks or somebody read our brief. Uh, but basically, we made three points in this brief that I, I think are extremely important and have completely changed the way people need to think about these vaccines. Uh, the first point is that Omicron is now almost completely dominant. Uh, it is now elbowed out, basically. Uh, Delta and the other variants, almost everywhere. The Midwest still has some Delta, but the East and West Coast is basically 100% Omicron. Uh, and the rest of the country will be fairly soon if they're not there yet. Uh, and that has two implications that completely negate the argument for vaccine mandates. And uh, that's because number one, Omicron is much, much milder than the previous variants that we've seen. It almost never has lung involvement. It tends to cause an upper respiratory infection. Uh, and the death rates are something like 90% lower, uh, maybe even more than that. Although, you know, different countries are getting slightly different numbers. Uh, but, you know, when you knock it down by 90 percent, uh, you're talking about something that's become a very ordinary respiratory virus. It's on the same order of magnitude as flu and, uh, and human metapneumovirus and RSV and all the other viruses that we've lived with forever and have never considered a grave danger or a basis for imposing emergency measures. So that's uh, number one. The number two argument uh, that we made uh, that I think is also extremely well supported and kind of obvious to anyone who sort of looks around at what's been going on now is the vaccines cannot prevent transmission with Omicron. Uh, they do still have benefit for reducing hospitalization and death, although, you know, as I said, those are much lower risks to start with even before the vaccine reduction. Uh, but they have essentially no effect on transmission or nearly no effect on transmission, which is why everyone you know who's vaccinated, you know, a lot of them got it uh, during this wave. Uh, and, you know, if you don't have an effect on transmission, you really can't make an argument for a mandate because the whole idea of a mandate was you have to get it because if you don't get it, you're endangering other people. Well, that's not the case anymore with Omicron. Your decision to get the vaccine or not is a personal health decision for you. Um, and, you know, you might want to get it if you're in a risk category, especially. And, you know, but it doesn't affect other people. So government has no interest in a mandate. So that, that's basically what we laid out in, in our brief. And uh, the Solicitor General of Ohio mentioned it in oral arguments. So that was uh, that was kind of exciting for us. Um, and obviously we got a split decision at the Supreme Court because they stopped the OSHA mandate, but not the CMS mandate. But interestingly, uh, you know, in their, in their decision on the CMS mandate, because it's not final, they just said, we're not issuing a stay. We'll send the case back to the district court to hear the, uh, you know, the factual arguments, hear it on the merits. They said that the, the rationale for the order was that the secretary determined that the vaccine reduces transmission. And so it's a transmission control mechanism under the CMS statute. Well, I think that the, I, I think that the states that are, that are in that lawsuit 
can make a very, very good argument now on remand at the district court uh, that with this variant and this vaccine, it really doesn't stop transmission. And uh, that was, was uh, it doesn't even pass a rational basis test. And so uh, that, that's kind of what we presented. That's the state of play uh, on those cases now. I'm hoping, Ward, that we'll get an updated vaccine that maybe would stop transmission. One of the things that's so crazy about all of this is they're still trying to mandate a vaccine for a two-year-old virus that doesn't exist anymore. They haven't updated it for the strain that's actually going around, which, you know, we would never do, for instance, for flu vaccines. And so I don't know if there's some weird bureaucratic stuff going on at FDA or what, because uh, the company said right away they had updated vaccines. And yet here we are uh, talking about using the same one from a two-year-old virus. We have a couple of questions. And one of the questions I think I've got myself, because uh, um, what you're speaking of, of course, has been covered in several different places. Uh, I'm looking at a Friday a review and outlook in the Wall Street Journal opinion page, and you probably have seen it. Yeah. And you just touched on something which is confusing to me. Uh, how does this, can you elaborate on this a little bit more, uh, affect the healthcare workers? That's the, uh, I didn't quite All right. that well, well. I need some help on that. Were the, uh, they had two separate cases. One was for all the workers in the economy, and the Supreme Court struck that one down. That's the, the other OSHA. one was just right? right? the OSHA one. Right. The other one is just for healthcare workers in facilities that take Medicare or Medicaid dollars, which is almost all healthcare facilities, because obviously those are huge government programs. Uh, and for that one, they did not grant the stay. For that one, they kept the mandate in effect. But it's really important to know uh, that the state of Florida already has a standardized exemption process. They were the first state to do this. And if you go on the Healthy Florida website, you can pull up forms that you either have a medical objection or a religious objection or, you know, whatever. They've got a few different choices of forms and you don't need to put any explanation on it. You just need to check a box and sign your name. And it's required under Florida law that your employer accept that as a valid exemption. And so Florida has essentially created an opt-out right, if you have a sincerely held religious, moral, or ethical belief against the vaccine and you're a healthcare worker, unlike the other 49 states, you don't need to write a note or an explanation or any of that. You just need to sign that form and they're required to accept that. Well, let me ask you this, and that means then uh, that the nurse taking care of you may not have been vaccinated for, uh, in Florida anyway, for this uh, COVID. Now, can departments within that hospital set their own standards? Well, um, I'm thinking now of intensive care. Um, the intensive care unit that a hospital I'm familiar with does not have anybody working in there who is not um, either tested that moment or has been vaccinated. You just yeah, I mean, I think the testing is actually the most important thing in those circumstances because we've got so many people now who are vaccinated that are getting the virus anyway and are passing it on. So I don't think from a from a infection control standpoint that the vaccine is the important thing. I think the test is the important thing in that circumstance. And one of the things we're seeing in a lot of states now, including New York, is they fired all of the healthcare workers that weren't vaccinated, even if they were, even if they've had the virus already, even if they're testing negative, whatever. Uh, but they were so short-staffed that they actually allowed vaccinated healthcare workers with current active infections who still had symptoms to come back to work. And so we got sort of this bizarre upside down world where people who are actively infectious are allowed to work in hospitals in some of these states, uh, but people who are totally negative, test negative, already had the thing, whatever, uh, are not just because of their vaccine decision. So I think, you know, I get the question that you're asking, because obviously you don't want someone who's working with vulnerable people 
to potentially infect them. That's really important. But I don't think that where we are now with a vaccine that doesn't stop transmission, that vaccines are an effective way to do that. Uh, and I'm hoping that when they update the vaccine, it actually will work for the variant that's currently circulating on stopping transmission. And then it's a different conversation. But as of right now, we've got a vaccine that has very little, if any, transmission effect, and you're essentially uh, you know, discriminating against people irrationally. The important thing is to have the, you know, to have the, that, that point of care rapid testing so that you can confirm that people aren't infectious at that time when they're working with vulnerable people. Well, as you imagine, we got a lot of questions coming in. Why did Kavanaugh vote to enforce the mandate for hospital workers? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he went with Roberts. I think it was very disappointing. It's a very strange decision in that uh, almost all the logic that was in their OSHA case really should have applied to both cases. When they said one of the like five four and the other was a six three. So yeah, I, and I kind of thought that Roberts would split his vote because that's the way he is. And so after the oral argument, I said, kind of, it's going to be a six three on OSHA. It'll be a five four uh, on CMS, but we'll win both. I did not think he would convince. Anyone, anyone else, uh, any of the other Republican appointed justices to go with him. And obviously he did with Kavanaugh. And I think the, uh, you know, the argument there was probably, you know, look, the CMS statute has very broad language. It's different from the OSHA statute in that regard. And a stay is a very high bar. Remember, this came under a procedural posture where, you know, they're not deciding on the merits of whether this order is lawful or constitutional. They're just deciding if it's so outrageous, so out of bounds that it should be stayed before it can be adjudicated. And they said the OSHA one wasn't. Uh, I think that, that Roberts was able to persuade Kavanaugh, per, most likely he was able to persuade him by saying, look, this language is much broader in the statute and all we're deciding here is to stay. And so I, I think it was one of these situations where Roberts just was able to exert some influence and he was able to get Kavanaugh to come along. But it was pretty disappointing because, uh, you know, the logic and the rationale should have been pretty clear, I think, in both cases. And, you know, these are guys... You know, they go to the same country club, they're friends socially. Uh, this is something we're going to have to worry about, I think, the, that Roberts may be at times able to bring Kavanaugh along with him and side with the liberals in cases. Talking with Phil Kirpin, President of American Commitment, if you have a question here, uh, either 352-325-3938 or Facebook chat me. I'm looking at some of the comments you're bringing in and passing them along to our conversation with Phil, all of which uh, you imagine are on people's minds. This is a very I thought, Phil, in the beginning when COVID came along, I'd probably report on it maybe once or twice a week. And now I have a, <laughs> and now I have a daily spot every yeah, day. You didn't realize that the liberals would decide it's literally the only thing that matters in the world for years on that. Well, you have to be careful how we say this, too, because we're watched all the time by the, by the platform uh, millennials who don't want you to question the election. But yeah. it certainly provided cover for the election, did it not? COVID now, we'll say a lot of people, you know, a, a lot of people, the more cynical, the more cynical minded people among our friends are sure that they're going to announce a new variant in the summer just in time. To see the election <laughs> in disarray again. Well, uh, and, and, and then, too, I can see the connection that it was deliberately, uh, oh, my golly, you know, released by Wuhan to take over the world and, uh, and thin out the, their the, population. The, the funniest conspiracy theory I heard, Ward, you'll like this. I think this is completely crazy, but it's the funniest conspiracy theory I heard is that Omicron is a lab-created transmissible vaccine that was designed to end the pandemic, and it was financed and released by Melinda Gates for Revenge Against <laughs> Bill. I haven't heard that one, but I have heard this one, that everyone who has taken the, the, the shot by their, either Pfizer or Moderna, 
the immune system in two years will completely collapse uh, because of the mnRNA or whatever it is that was used to develop it. And that's the ticking time bomb. Have you heard that? Or is there any? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think that's physically possible because the thing dissipates, uh, you know, within weeks. So I, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that. But the Melinda Gates one is the funniest. That is something. Let me ask you um, about this because I'm looking. I'm really using not only your comments here, but also uh, this split decision on back, uh, vaccine mandates that I'm alluding to here. Um, um, it seems to be a clear difference between the liberal evaluation process of the liberal judges. And the, the guy who seems to have the most consistent is Clarence Thomas, is, seems to be the, the most best. clear-eyed guy on the bench. He's the best. Look, I mean, here's the problem in all these cases now. On any case of any significance, uh, the three liberals are always already in the tank for whatever the liberal outcome is. What they, they don't even really pretend to do law anymore. I mean, it's just whatever the liberal outcome is, they're going to be for. And you need to be able to get five out of the other six in order to win a case. And Roberts, for whatever reason, is very political and very calculating, and he considers things beyond the law. I mean, he pretty clearly does, starting with the Obamacare case. And he so it. he overthinks it. Yeah. He, he, how will we be perceived? You know, what is the, yeah. you know, and, you know, and, and in fact, you know, the irony is the court's perceived worse because he considers how the court's perceived. You know what I mean? Yes, if they just yes. did law, they'd be perceived, their perception would be more favorable. Yes. Um, you know, so I think, you know, you've got this situation where you've got the chief in the middle and you've got the three to his left that aren't really deciding on the merits necessarily. And so, you know, you kind of need like, and then the others are all very thoughtful. Uh, you know, they're going to look at the merits. They're going to, you know, like Barrett asked all kinds of technical statutory questions about different language. They're going to work through a process and when you got uh, when you have one group of people who are working through a process and are considering all the details and all the arguments on both sides, they're not always going to agree with each other. And all it takes is a little disagreement, and the side that's all, always already in the tank for the outcome they want can win cases. Let me ask you this: You made a very interesting point, which has uh, uh, sparked a conversation here. And one comment says, "Thanks for the explanation. Great explanation. If we can take for granted the liberal." vote because it wants to be in lockstep with the political ideology. Is such a thing exist among the conservatives on the bench? I think not. No, it really doesn't because the conservatives, uh, you know, they all, they, they take, it varies somewhat depending on the case and the principles and so forth, but they all start with doctrine. They start with their concept of how to do statutory or constitutional interpretation, and then they apply it to the facts, and then they make a decision. And just the 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 methods that they use aren't concerned about the outcomes in a policy or political sense. That's not the way they make their decisions, uh, unlike the liberals who kind of say, you know, we can twist the law to be whatever we need it to be for these great outcomes that we want to accomplish. And so because the liberals are outcome-oriented and the conservatives are process-oriented, uh, you just you, you don't have a conservative equivalent to you know sort of liberal judicial activism where you know you you figure out whatever you want the law to be to get the outcome you want. We we don't really have that on the right. I mean the you know liberals will claim that we do and they'll accuse conservative judges of doing that, but I I don't really see certainly at the Supreme Court level I don't see anyone who does that. Well, you know, Phil, it's interesting you bring up what the liberals blame the. Republicans for it's what the liberals themselves do yeah. and 
one of the things that I think they're setting up right now, and we may, we got a break coming up. We may want to talk about this a little bit more, but I believe that if elections, I mean, I'm, let me put it this way. I hypothesize that if the election does not go the Democrat way in the fall, they will accuse the Republicans of the very same thing uh, um, they claim the Republicans are accusing them of right now. And that is manipulation of the election. In other words, I think they're setting that up. I think they're setting up right now um, a cultural doubt about the election validities that haven't come But Ward, as you were just saying, they claim that Russia stole the election for years on end for Trump. Yes. You know, yes. And now they say, oh, our Republicans are the big lie. Uh, they're Nazis. It's like, I'm like, well, what? You know, I mean, I, I don't know. It's. But what gets me about that claim they had, they all the various institutions of trust they employed to help perpetuate it. Yeah. The FBI, the CIA. I don't con consider the media to be anything worth trusting anymore. But certainly you put trust in the FBI and the CIA and the judicial branch and all of them piled on, too, and went with it. So, you know, it, it was uh, really quite alarming. Talking to Phil Kirk and President American Commitment, occasional guest, I'd say a regular guest on our show, we really welcome uh, questions. Uh, my message is 352-325-3938 on the Melvin Law Hotline or with me here on Facebook chat. And um, there's all kinds of questions coming in on pharmaceutical companies' interest. Uh, just before we take a break, uh, let, me, let me put this question to you. Is there such a thing as super immunity? Well, it's um, a term I heard that one. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we've, we've got a lot of evidence that people who've been infected and recovered have pretty strong immunity. Uh, if you have that and also have a vaccine on top of it, you it seems to top it up even a little bit more. But it doesn't super immunity. It's not like an order of magnitude. But I mean, the thing is that it's a respiratory virus, right, Ward? You know, I mean, if you get it doesn't mean you're never going to get it again. You probably won't get it again for a year or two. But, you know, there's no guarantee, even if you had it, even if you have the vaccine. You know, I mean, it's it's a respiratory virus. Bugs go around. You know, you're going to and people, people if you're if you think that there's some circumstance that you can have where you're never going to get it again, no matter what. I don't think that exists. Well, we're going to have a question on the heels of that. I'm going to save it for a minute. Um, see if production is ready to go on a small break here. I'm looking at my main man. We're going to take a small break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to have to have a question here coming in about, does that mean, therefore, Phil, we'll answer this after the break. We're perpetually going to off and on see mass. Uh, mass are such a contentious issue. Maybe we ought to talk about that for a moment. Be right back with Phil Kerper, American Commit. We're going to take a break for our sponsors who help us so much uh, have these conversations with so many important people who are experts on things uh, that you will be an expert once you listen to us. Okay? Be right back on The Word Scott Wiles. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are On the Spot Dry Cleaners, Okita America Martial Arts, R&R Construction, Gators Dockside, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend, Freddie, 
at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. Okay, we're back hot again. Thank you very much for production giving us a break for our sponsors. Thank our sponsors. Want to give a shout out to Style Cuts, the official barber of the Ward Scott Files. Where if you notice, I just got my most recent flat top with whatever hair I've got left. So um, that's a good buddy of mine, David Ratliff, and I'll also mention the other sponsors as we go along. Um, we've been talking on the break, Phil, and I've been talking about the mask or not the mask. I even had a show called that one day because I don't know what to do about it. I mean, some people say, and I've come to believe this, Phil, you wear a mask not to protect yourself. You wear a mask so that you don't give it to somebody else. Is that really the bottom line? Uh, it really makes, it, it makes almost no difference uh, either way, to be honest. Uh, the, there, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of studies now. Um, they all either show no effect at all or a very tiny effect, like something like a 10% reduction. Um, in practice, you know, let's say, let's say you believe that it's towards the higher end of that, that there actually is some, some effect. Well, what does that really mean? You know, let's say you get a 10% reduction in, in aerosol production or something like that. Well, that means that, you know, instead of it taking 10 minutes to transmit to someone, now it's going to take 11 or 12. I, in practice, there are very few circumstances where I think it makes any difference at all. And so, then you have to weigh that against the inconvenience, the psychological harms, the disruption of sort of normalcy. So to me, even if you think that there's a, even if you think there's a transmission effect, the effect is, the effect size based on all the studies that we have is so small that I don't think you can justify it for the disruption that it causes and so forth. Uh, the issue now is they're basically coming out and the same experts who said force people to wear pieces of cloth on their face for two years on end, including children for eight hours a day, are now saying, yeah, that didn't do anything. That really had no effect. You know, sorry, but we're going to call for fitted respirators, type 95 type masks instead, which actually will be protective. And, you know, the problem with that word is that unless you have a continuous seal, unless you've had a fit test and you know how to wear it and it's continuously sealed so that you're only breathing through it and not around it, uh, that actually does even less. I mean, there's a Canadian lab study that found that fabric ones reduce aerosols about 10% and a thick type 95, if you have a three millimeter gap, reduces it only 3% because you breathe right around it. Because of the pressure differential, if it's thick, it's going to breathe right around the side. So, I mean, basically, if you're, I would actually say the opposite of what you said, Ward. I think that the, I think that the, um, the effect on stopping outbound transmission is so small you know, something like zero to 10%, that it probably can't justify it. The situation where you want to consider a mask is if you're personally vulnerable, let's say you're in a very high risk group and you're going into a very highly densely packed indoor setting to say there's no ventilation at all, there's going to be stagnant air, then maybe you do go with a type 95 mask for yourself to protect yourself. But if you do that, you need to make sure that it's fit tested, you have no facial hair and you have it's continuously sealed the whole time so that you're breathing through it and not around it. Otherwise, it's not going to accomplish anything. And so I think that 
you know, the, the, and then by the way, here's the problem with the mandates. Okay. Right. Ward, if somebody's only wearing it because you made them, they're not going to get anything out of it. They're going to be intentionally breathing out the top of the sides because they don't want to be wearing it. And so, you know, if somebody really wants to, and they're really careful about it and they maintain a continuous seal, I think they can get some benefit out of it. But most people, the way they're actually used, I don't think it's accomplishing anything. And definitely when you force people with a mandate, they're not going to be getting anything out of it. So that, that's my read of the literature. I have seen occasionally, and I don't know if this helps at all, I have seen the shield. Um, people have a whole kind of motorcycle helmet shield on the front of it. Does that deter anything is a question personally? Well, that really, can't, that really can't do anything for the vast majority of transmission because it, it's aerosol particles. They move like smoke through the air. They're submicron particles, uh, and they'll just go around it. Fluid dynamics, they'll just go around it. Uh, that can stop a droplet. And the original idea with a lot of these masks and with things like the shields and the plexiglass is that it would stop a droplet, basically a little bit of spit that comes out of your mouth. But we now know that uh, droplets are negligible for transmission. Uh, most of the transmission is aerosol. Got a question here. What about the deaths and harms reported from taking the mRNA vaccines? Is that a, a significant statistic? And what is the truth about that? You know, it's tough because... When you do a mass vaccination campaign and hundreds of millions of people get something, you're going to have a lot of deaths that chronologically follow that because a lot of people die every day when you're talking about a population that big. And so you can find, uh, you know, that a temporal connection where people take it and then they die. Uh, a causal connection, I don't think we really have that uh, in any significant numbers. The side effects, the side effects that we are seeing, uh, we're seeing menstrual side effects in women so irregular periods that kind of thing that's definitely happening we saw some blood clotting uh particularly with women with women with the johnson and johnson which is why they did that pause uh but the real the, the main one has been cardiac adverse events uh, particularly myo and pericarditis inflammation of the heart which we've seen in younger men and boys basically uh, men under 30 and and boys we've seen a pretty significant number of those i mean it's still rare we're talking about you know, small numbers uh, overall, but I think that uh, we've seen enough that there's a real question about risk benefit for that population, which is very, very low risk for COVID. And, you know, a lot of the doctors have run these numbers and I'm, I'm a fan of uh, Vinay Prasad at uh, University of California, San Francisco, who's really run all these numbers. Uh, and, and there are a few other people who've done similar analysis. Um, younger men should not be taking the Moderna vaccine. That's most countries have now said that the US is not uh, because it's a much higher dose than the Pfizer vaccine has more cardiac side effects. Um, and they probably should either just get one dose or space out the doses wider than the standard three weeks. And I think that we've done a really bad job in this country of giving people personalized advice that makes sense for their situation instead of trying to tell everyone to do the same thing. And um, you know, one of the harms of that has been these cardiac adverse events uh, for, for young men and boys. And then they're almost all after the second dose. So that's, you know, the obvious question then is, could they have just had one dose or could you have spaced it out longer? And FDA and CDC totally dismissed that. They did not even consider alternate dosing schedules, which, uh, you know, I found pretty outrageous. What about mixing the vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna? Is that innocuous? Or? Well, they said it's fine, but there really weren't any studies. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, but if you think about it, Ward, when you go in for a flu shot, you don't tell them I need to have the same brand I had last year. You take whatever they have. So right. I, I'm not sure that that, I, you know, I don't have any strong sense either way on on, uh, on that one. 
And, you know, obviously you do on a much uh, more, I don't know, well, let's do it this way. You and I do a lot of the same thing. We study constantly data and sources of data. And some of it, you know, you take a look at and you kind of squint and you kind of put over on the side of the desk and uh, others you move to the center. Um, you just cited a couple of places. Evidently, you have found to be very trustworthy in their analysis of information. Um, did you come to that? How did you come to that conclusion? Because I face that every day. Which well, what I always say, Ward, is follow the data, not the experts. And so I really try to look at the primary data sources myself uh, for all of this stuff. And I follow the HHS uh, hospital data, for instance, every single day. And I've got you know Google Sheets to track that. And uh, I, I don't... I don't trust, I never take someone's word for it. If someone's making an argument, I go and look at the data and see if it matches what they're saying because uh, we've had so much bad analysis and bad advice from experts uh, on, on all sides that, I mean, I just don't think you can take anyone's word for anything, including mine, by the way. You know, I mean, go, I, I would tell people, you know, look at the numbers, see if they actually match what people are saying and, uh, you know, be skeptical about everything because the vast majority of everything everyone has said about COVID has been wrong. Well, I'm always on the same page on that. I conduct this as like, you know, like a classroom and you're our guest today and um, and everybody is fair game. I mean, question us, uh, go look at your own sources and see. But I'm like you, I don't I don't want to say I'm cynical, but I'm very wary of anything I get that is a conclusion that I haven't that people haven't shared the data with me from which they got the conclusion. And, you know, that's really now, that's why most so many of these CDC, uh, they have this thing called MMWR, which is where they put out like all their studies, but they never release any of the data. <laughs> and, you know, it just supports whatever the CDC policy is. And, but they always get headlines with those. And it's very frustrating. Here we have a question from, um, well, I happen to know this is a longtime fan of the show, Vietnam vet. Um, really was in the Agent Orange world back then and now is suffering, you know, the damage of that uh, with the... Uh, the mass and whatnot is on oxygen. Should that kind of person be doing what? Getting the vaccine or wearing a mask or none of the above or all of the above or some of the above, you know? I don't know. Well, you're the not good news is what, that if you're, what I'm saying is, what does the data show? I'm not asking you a medical question so much as I am a, have you run across this type of situation? Yeah, I mean, the uh, people who are already on oxygen support regularly for another condition actually tend to do relatively well with COVID because oxygenation is so beneficial for COVID. I mean, the good news right now with Omicron is that it tends to be an upper respiratory infection. You don't tend to have lung involvement. And so, uh, you know, to the extent people with things like COPD or other respiratory conditions were really worried about it, that's maybe a little bit less of a concern with this variant than, than with the previous ones that we've seen. But, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, based on you know, obviously talk to your own doctor, but I would suspect uh, that someone in that circumstance is in enough of a risk group that the vaccines almost certainly make sense. Uh, you know, although I'm disappointed, as I said, that they still haven't updated the thing. And I mean, we should have one for the current variant by now. And I think they're saying March or something like that. They'll have one. I, don't, I mean, yeah. we went from Trump's Operation Warp Speed to Operation, I don't know, Snail Speed. I, it's it's ridiculous to me that that's taking so long. So obviously, you know, the benefit's going to be somewhat muted by the fact that it's not a good match for the strain that's going around right now. Uh, but is it 
better than nothing? Probably. The other thing, though, that people that, that are health experts almost never talk about, but I think is extremely important is, you know, right away after you get a vaccine shot, you want to be avoiding contact with people for at least a week after that because your immune system responds to the vaccine. It gets kind of knocked down. Your, your neutrophils get knocked down your, your, uh, and then they come back up. They respond to the, uh, to the immune challenge. That's the whole idea of presenting the antigen. And so when we tell people you get the vaccine and then you're good, go out and party, well, that actually leads to these booms, these post-vaccine booms in infections, because people think they're protected, but actually it's the opposite for about a week. You know, they've sort their bodies reacting to the shot. So if you do get the shot, be super careful for the first week afterwards, then you'll have the protection. Interesting, interesting. We're talking with Phil Kirpin, President of American Commitment, just in case you're wondering about American Commitment, it's committed to free markets, economic growth, constitutionally limited government. That's a biggie. And we were talking about that in terms of the way these Supreme Court justices uh, depart or stick to the Constitution, uh, private property rights and individual freedom. So uh, AmericanCommitment.org, I believe, is the website. And um, uh, these fellows do all sorts of uh, sometimes direct advocacy, sometimes strategic policy analysis and grassroots mobilization information like this. So it's a very valuable organization. Is this an organization that could benefit from donations? Let's talk about the organization for a moment. Yeah, I mean, everyone everyone needs to keep the lights on. So if people do like what we're doing, uh, there's a donate button on the website. Also, whenever you do one of our actions, like letters to Congress or into the White House or anything in our action center, you know, at the end of that, we land you on a donation page to remind you uh, that you can support us that way. So, I mean, the big thing we're pushing right now is we're trying to get a vote in the Senate on overturning that health worker mandate that we were talking about. Um, and there's an action item for that in our action center. And then uh, that'll also land you on the donation page. Also, you know, while we're talking about the Senate and all that, um, uh, you know, I think we talked about this in the past. It's kind of not directly related to the topic we're on right now, but it is a manipulation of the voting procedures in the Senate. And of course, the uh, uh, fraudulent, if I would say, I can't use that word, be very careful because uh, the the, uh, the uh, millennials are hawkish all the time, don't like that word. But let's put it this way, uh, uh, whether or not we're going to uh, um, build back better, you know? No, I think, I think we've got that one beat. We got oh, that one beat? I think so. <laughs> you think those two are going to commit and stick with what they're... Yeah, I mean, I think the... I, I don't think the Democrats are going to patch, pa pass much of anything significant this year. I mean, they still need to do appropriations. They have to fund the government. They haven't actually passed, you know, they passed a huge infrastructure bill, but the package of earmarks that we're going to direct where it gets spent ended up not being attached to it. So they got to go back and fix that. Uh, but I, I don't see them doing any other heavy lifts in terms of new legislation, which is good because the country needs to digest the other $6 trillion of spending and all the crazy stuff that's already passed. Well, you know, we had a show we called The Devil Went Down to Georgia off the Charlie Daniels uh, song. And boy, it certainly seems as if uh, uh, old Uncle Joe uh, has been more of a negative impact on his, uh, on his uh, party than he was a positive. And I wondered um, uh, how you read this. And uh, I don't know if there's any data that shows the, the, the reflex to that. I think there probably is already. I don't know how trustworthy it is, but it seems his poll numbers went down. And um, now what concerns me a little bit, and we, this is maybe something we can talk about, because uh, I know you really have an active mind and are interested in so many things. Ukraine, 
you know, now we're going to ramp up the uh, <laughs> the threat of Russia to distract us from our domestic issues. Is that possible again? You know, it's it's pretty unbelievable, uh, Ward, because the same time the Democrats are saying the filibuster is evil and racist and we need to blow it up on Thursday of this past week. They filibustered Ted Cruz's bill to sanction Russia over the uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, gas pipeline to Germany, uh, which they claim to support. <laughs> they claim to support his sanctions, but then they filibustered the bill. Uh, you know, I, the Democrats are playing a really strange double game on Russia, as they have uh, for, for many years now. They attack Republicans and conservatives as somehow being in the pocket of Putin, but they're the ones who undermine U.S. energy production. They're the ones who prop Putin up and help him extend his reach into Western Europe. And it seems to me, I'm not a huge foreign policy guy, but it seems to me that you're absolutely correct that they're essentially inviting him to take Ukraine with these sort of half-hearted statements and uh, the lack of any firm uh, commitment to, to stop it. And so I, I don't, you know, maybe they think that a foreign policy crisis will help them change voters' attention from you know their domestic policy disaster, but I think it just makes everything worse. Remember, it was actually the, Af the, the botched Afghanistan withdrawal is what caused his ratings, his approval ratings to plunge, and they've never recovered. But it was that it was actually a foreign policy failure that caused all the other wheels to come off. And uh, I do think that I, I don't understand their strategy with Russia, but I think it's headed for disaster. Well, you know, you just took the words out of my mouth because I was going to say, how can they claim to have any uh, credibility in military threat against Russia's uh, uh, involvement with Ukraine when they just botched Afghanistan badly, Rend left billions Rendously. of dollars with equipment rotting on the sand. I mean, come on. The worse than that, we the Taliban took it, eighty billion dollars of military equipment we gave to the enemy. Yes, yes, yes. And, and you know, and you mentioned you got to laugh like, or you're going to cry. I mean, there's nothing. I, 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 well, and you're right there in the belly of the beast. Uh, we got a question coming in, and I, I think this is also since something that's been used against uh, Trump, and uh, he doesn't get enough credit. Let's hypothesize, get your response on Operation Warp Speed. Yeah. Um, do you agree? Well, look, I think what they accomplished was pretty remarkable, and I think the vaccines were really good for the variant of the virus they were designed for. Remember, the thing plummeted to like nothing, um, and I think Trump should get total credit for that because normally it would have taken you know 10 years for something like that and actually his plan of snapping off the pandemic sort of mid-pandemic with these vaccines i think would have worked except that what, what happened was the virus changed and we didn't change the vaccine right, so what right. happened was you know the, the virus changed we kept using the same vaccine and where it still worked some but it didn't work you know you you remember when it's not when the vaccine first came out in the spring and summer and people started to, it snapped off completely. And it wasn't just the seasonal effect because it happened everywhere. And, you know, I do think Trump deserves a massive amount of credit for that. And, and I, I, I think that though he needs to explain to people that it wasn't like, Oh, my vaccine failed. My vaccine worked for the virus it was designed for. And the Biden administration failed to update it for the new virus when the virus changed. That's what he needs to explain to people. Absolutely. Uh, I think you're right on there. And um, that's not been said. And, and, and it's obvious that that's the case. And Operation Warp Speed, as I understand it, Bill, was designed for um, distributing military equipment quickly 
in needed places. I think the plan originally came out of um, taking care of Europe, if I if I recall. And if that's the case, then he needs credit too for dusting that off and applying it to domestic needs. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly about that history, but I do know there was like a pandemic response executive order in 2019 that kind of laid out the template for how they did this. So, I mean, they anticipated something like this and they had this strategy of, you know, developing vaccines quickly. So it was, there definitely was pre-planning involved. I'm not sure if it was related to military. I, I'm not sure about that part, but I, I do yeah, know. I mean, that. I, I should, uh, that, uh, several sources indicated that was. The case. I mean, I, I, it could be right. I'm just, I'm not aware. Yeah, that's where that name Operation Warp Speed came. We can check that out. But I mean, I, someone needs, the Biden administration really needs to be hammered on this point that, uh, you know, Trump created the vaccine basically from nothing, from scratch. And Biden can't be bothered to just change it a little bit to match the new variant. They just, they, I, and so there was, I think, a regulatory failure. They're saying March. By the time they get that out in March, the thing's going to be over. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, it's so indicate, you know, it's such an indication of so many other, um, um, I don't know what you call it, malfeasance or just incompetence or um, slow to draw um, behaviors that have an effect. I mean, it's just become so obvious. So, you know, do you see um, a reversal in the fall? Really? I'm really holding my breath. I think so. I think so. Look, I mean, you look at like the Gallup numbers, for instance, we have the highest party ID Republican we've ever seen total reversal over the course of the last year. Um, you know, people don't want what the Democrats are offering other than, you know, a small core base of their supporters. And I think they kind of know that, but they can't course correct because they're captive to the angry Twitter mobs with, you know, uh, pronouns in their profiles and all this kind of stuff. And uh, they, they, the radical left has uh, really taken charge of the Democratic Party. And uh, that's caused alienation of most regular people who just like, OK, let, let's can we just have a normal life now? And, you know, if they can't deliver that, they're going to get voted out in massive numbers, which is why so many Democrats are retiring because they see the writing on the wall. Really? You're very close there to Virginia. How's the new governor going over there? Uh, he's come out and taken a stand dead on against critical race theory in K through 12. Said one of the yeah, that was his number one executive order was banning critical race theories. Number two was parents have a right to opt out of school masks. Uh, he had like 10 other ones. He ended the state's participation in the Northeast cap and trade uh, greenhouse gas scheme. I mean, he's uh, he's starting really well out of the gate. Of course, there's going to be massive pushback, blowback. Uh, the media and the Democrats and everyone else are going to villainize him. He's going to go through everything that your governor went through, and we'll see if he uh, stands up to the test. And uh, if he doesn't back down, I think you know, he's going to accomplish a lot. Immigration, I was, uh, we had a guest recently who suggested that uh, immigration really is the uh, uh, sleeping issue here that is profoundly affecting the uh, this country, the the uh, the uh, avoiding completely the concept of citizenship, and then in some places, you know, like New York, actually allowing non-citizens to vote, as we understand it. Uh, any comments about that? That's coming in as a question. So you're you're considered to be um, excellent yeah. on everything right now, Phil. Well, I mean, I think that uh, I think the non-citizen voting thing is very dangerous, obviously. Uh, if you let people who are not citizens of your country choose the, the leaders and the policies, uh, they may not represent the best interests of Americans at that point. And uh, I, I um, you know, my take on the immigration issue, I don't know if you're, I, I might 
this might be a point of disagreement with your audience. I think that we need a lot more immigrants than we have right now. We've got a massive labor shortage everywhere you go in this country has got to help want it sign. We need more people to fill these jobs so that businesses can grow and expand and provide services. Um, but we've got to do it by fixing our legal immigration system, because what happens when you have an illegal immigration system that's too restrictive and too cumbersome and too bureaucratic is the economic pressure, the need for workers overwhelms whatever you try to do on enforcement and you get a total collapse at the border and you get a lawless situation, which is what we have right now. And so I would like to see more border enforcement, which I think, you know, kind of all conservatives agree on. But I also think we need a lot more legal immigrants because our labor force has contracted significantly and we've had an acceleration in retirements uh, during COVID that are people who are not coming back. And, uh, you know, you can't make this economy work without, you know, people to fill those jobs. Yes, and certainly it seems as if the government handouts has exacerbated the problem. Definitely. Yeah, I agree with you that. Know, completely backfired and created this. Uh, now we have a leisure class, if you will, and creeping socialism is one way to look at it. I mean, then, uh, you know, time has already gone. We've flown by here and we've been talking with Phil Kerfman. It's always great to talk with Phil. I'm sure he'll circle back with us in a, in a few weeks and uh, we'll have an update. Thanks so much uh, for being with us today, Phil. Uh, we got a couple of minutes left. I want to thank production for uh, helping us here run a smooth show. And we're always adapting to uh, some things that you all don't know going on in the background. Facebook changes its way in which uh, uh, it projects. Uh, YouTube does its thing. Um, uh, we've been criticized by YouTube. We have put in an appeal um, that um, uh, one show way back when uh, we, we we questioned um, the validity of um, uh, oh, I didn't, or somebody did, a guest did, the uh, election. And um, uh, this is really a form of censorship that you may not be aware is going on. Um, anything that is questioning the election is cut off. Uh, so we are careful, increasingly so, about how we talk about it. Uh, but you've got to be informed. And um, so be, be active, as, as Phil demonstrated today. Uh, have an active mind, uh, consult with people like this show, people like him, and consult your sources and try to sort them out and find some balance. You know, I, you know, extreme positions on either end generally are not the uh, accurate representation of what is. Uh, we, all we all would like to have a perfectly perfect world uh, with everybody being held accountable to that standard. It's not going to happen. Uh, we just examined that perplexing situation by a close-up analysis of the Supreme Court justices, um, the difference between the liberal judges and the uh, conservative judges, and something I always suspected was so. Uh, the liberals always find a, um, a reason to support the conclusion they want, whereas the conservatives don't know the conclusion until they work through the process of discovering it. And I think that's probably pretty much a, uh, a, a, an accurate uh, uh, analysis of what defines a conservative versus a liberal. And if you have conservatives that already have their mind made up too, and everything must conform to the conclusion they want, you got to discard them as well. Uh, they're not very helpful at all. And, and uh, generally, you can predict exactly what they're going to say. When you can start predicting what somebody's going to say, uh, because you know that they are uh, shopping their point of view continue, uh, uh, and so that it agrees with some ideology they have, be it on the left or be it on the right, uh, you probably ought to hold it suspect. So have a great day today. Have a great show and uh, uh, tomorrow for you. And uh, we keep bringing you the best uh, in the conversation we can bring you. Thanks, production. Award Hope Command Center out.